Well, it is my joy to be with you all this morning. I bring you greetings from Sterling Park Baptist Church. So we, uh, we consider you all uh, family, so certainly part of the larger body of Christ, but also part of the same sort of family tree of churches. So we love you all, love your pastor, and uh, are excited about what God's doing here. So being uh, invited to preach about evangelism feels a little bit like being asked to preach about marriage or humility, where you feel like, do I really want to get up in front of people and pretend like I'm an expert on these kinds of things? Uh, but what I, what I want to do, instead of uh, kind of giving you my own personal thoughts, is take you to a few different passages in the Bible. So uh, Garrett mentioned I'm not going to be uh, looking at those passages in Luke, um, but instead what I want to do is uh, look at a couple of different passages in the Bible, see what we see uh, about evangelism um, from those passages, and then uh, have some kind of pa- practical um, thoughts at the end. And so let's, let's start in a place uh, that you might expect. Um, so if you have a, a Bible, if you turn to Matthew chapter 28, so we are going to get to Acts 8, as uh, Garrett mentioned in a few minutes, but I actually want to start in Matthew 28, the, uh, the so-called Great Commission. So in order to kind of give you the setting here, Jesus has been crucified as a, a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He's been raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. He's about to ascend into heaven, uh, but first he has some instructions for his disciples. So in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we read, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. So Jesus is talking about evangelism, right? Evangelism is sharing the good news about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Evangelism is calling people to uh, turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, to become one of his disciples. And so here Jesus commissions his disciples for the task of taking this good news, this evangel, that's where we get the word evangelism, taking this good news out into the world. The idea is these disciples will go make disciples. Now, there are a bunch of things we could say about those verses, but let me just point out three things quickly before we move over to the book of Acts. First, that that commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, it applies to us as well. So you might be tempted to think that because Jesus is talking to his disciples, and because you know those disciples are going to grow up to become apostles, right? they're going to be like the big-time guys, the all-stars, the Hall of Fame guys, maybe you think, well, we're not really included in what Jesus is saying. I mean, he's telling those guys to go spread the gospel all over the world, but, but that doesn't necessarily apply to me. Maybe this commission is for people more important, more gifted than you and me. But Jesus says that this task to to go out and make disciples, he says it goes all the way to the end of the age. That is to say, Jesus sees this program of disciples making disciples going all the way until he returns and ushers us into the eternal state. And you may have noticed that those 12 disciples, they're not around anymore. So so we're the ones, those of us who have heard this gospel message that those disciples preached, we're the ones who carry out this commission today. 
The second thing to notice from what Jesus says here is that this is meant to be a normal part of our lives. So uh, our translations have Jesus saying, go and make disciples. And that's, a, that's fine. But, but the Greek word that Matthew records for us there is actually a participle. Uh, a more accurate translation would be, as you're going, make disciples. That is to say, I don't know that Jesus is instituting some new program that he wants his disciples to execute. Instead, he's envisioning that as they're going out, as they're going about their lives, they will be making disciples. And so we want to understand that while some of us will live out this great commission by picking up our our stuff and going somewhere foreign and exotic, the rest of us will live it out by making disciples as we go as we're engaged in the sort of normal rhythms of our lives. And then the third thing to notice is that when we go, as we go, Jesus goes with us. That's the really good news here. So if you feel overwhelmed or discouraged or just generally guilty when you think about evangelism and having to share the gospel, I think it might be because you don't understand what Jesus is saying here. When we go, Jesus goes with us. Right Before Jesus sends his disciples, he reminds them that he will be with them always. His presence and his power go with his people as they're making disciples. And can you see why that's good news? Because what does Jesus say about himself at the beginning of those verses? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's got all the authority. This is his place. He makes the rules. He decides what will happen. And so when we're sharing the gospel with people, when we're making disciples, we can be sure that Jesus is with us to help and to bless. And so if you feel nervous, if you feel intimidated or unprepared for the task, that's okay, because Jesus isn't. Right? You may not know this about me, but between me and Denzel Washington... We have two Academy Awards. In a similar way, if you take all of your power and all of your authority and you add it to Jesus's, you have all authority on heaven and earth, right? If Jesus is with you, you have everything you need to share the gospel. Okay, so with that said, flip over to the book of Acts. Let's see how this actually plays out in the life of the early church. Look at Acts chapter 8. So let me get you up to speed on what's going on here. The book of Acts is Luke's account of what happened to Jesus' followers next. So we read that great commission in Matthew's gospel. Luke wrote the book of Acts to explain what happens next as Jesus ascends into heaven. What we see is the church in Jerusalem has grown explosively uh, after the risen and ascended Christ sent the Holy Spirit. And so as a result, the church leaders began to suffer persecution in Jerusalem. The the religious leaders, the political establishment in Jerusalem were not happy about the spread of this new sect. And so they began to persecute the church. So chapter 7, we see a man named Stephen is murdered for his faith in Jesus. And that's where our story picks up. If you look at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 8, Luke tells us, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Luke tells us that immediately, right after Stephen was martyred, a terrible persecution broke out against the church. Uh, The suffering that had previously been confined just to the apostles in Jerusalem now spreads throughout the ranks of the church, throughout the region. So we read there in verse 3 that Saul, who oversaw and approved of Stephen's killing, now takes leadership in trying to destroy the young church. He was a man possessed. He was driven by hatred for God's people. And so there in verse 1, we see that the church is now beginning to be dispersed throughout Judea and Samaria. And what I want to do as we think about this passage is just briefly look at what happened as these believers fled from persecution. What we see is that the gospel begins to spread as the believers spread. The persecution of the church causes the good news about Jesus to spread all throughout Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus had said it would back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so let's look and see how it is that the gospel spreads in these verses. Three things in particular stand out. First, the gospel spreads organically. That is to say, the gospel spreads and it grows without a lot of human programs and strategies. Again, look there in verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, you see that Luke has particular interest in the ministries of, of a few prominent men. So Peter and John, the apostles, they sort of dominate the early chapters. Uh, Stephen gets the longest speech in the book in chapter 7. Uh, the next few chapters of Acts will be uh, dealing with the ministry of a man named Philip. We're introduced to him in these verses. And then the ministry of Paul. So this very Saul who's ravaging the church will be uh, the, the sort of bulk of the rest of the book of Acts will be about his conversion to Christ and his sacrifices to spread the gospel. But for all the emphasis on those specific people, Luke comes back several times to remind us that the spread of the gospel is the responsibility and privilege of normal Christians as well. So here in verse 4, it's everyone who's being scattered. It's the men and the women in the church fleeing persecution. They're the ones, Luke said, that preached the word as they went along. That word for preaching, it's not really describing some formal activity like what I'm doing now. So we shouldn't imagine that they, as they were going, sort of stopped, set up lecterns, got out notes, and started proclaiming things publicly. It's simply the verb evangelize. It's the verb form of of the Greek word for good news. They, as they were going, they good newsed everything. As they go, they proclaim the message about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. 
They don't wait for the apostles to come along and do the job. And you get the sense that this was just a, a normal, organic process. This wasn't the, revol- the result of some sort of evangelism program or some sort of top-down strategy for global mission. Rather, as they went, they, they shared the good news. It, it, you can see it would be natural. Right? You could imagine as they fled for their lives, people might ask, can't help but noticing you're fleeing for your life. What's going on? And so as they went, they had natural opportunities to, to share their faith. Luke draws attention to this again in chapter 11. If you look at chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. He says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, that is the Greeks, the non-Jews, or I'm sorry, the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So I think there's something of a pattern there for us to adopt. So there is certainly a place for formal proclamation of the word. But that's not the the entirety of your church's witness. Each and every Christian should be equipped and motivated to spread the gospel as they go along throughout their days. In fact, that's actually the job of pastors and elders. Not, Not to do that work for you, but to equip you to do that work. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's you all, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I I trust that's why your elders have pulled together this sort of season in church life to think about evangelism together. They want to do their job well, not by doing your job for you, but by helping to equip you to speak about Jesus well. But I think for most of us, if we don't often share our faith, if we don't often talk about Jesus with others, I think it's probably not because we're not well prepared. I mean, think about it. These people, as they went in Acts chapter 8, had probably only been Christians for a few weeks or months. But, but they didn't feel inadequate to share their faith. They didn't feel like they needed to wait and take a few theology classes before they could share the gospel. They'd been transformed by the good news about Jesus. They had suffered for the good news about Jesus. And so the good news was simply on their lips as they went along. They were gossiping the gospel. So I think we need to think about evangelism in terms of the sort of normal rhythms of our lives. And listen, I think that changes in different seasons of your life. So when I was a a newly married 20-something guy in grad school working for an insurance company 40 hours a week, a lot of my evangelistic opportunities happened in the context of the workplace. As a pastor now, very few of my coworkers are unconverted people, right? That's how it works. When my children were little, I had lots of time in the evenings to do evangelistic Bible studies at the homeless shelter or to have at-risk teenagers into my house. But, But now I've got teenagers myself that I need to to work with, right? And so what we've seen is that our evangelism as a family and as an individual, it looks different now. So so now I, most of my opportunities to share the gospel with people come in the context of coaching my kids' sports teams. 
So I coach three different baseball and softball teams, right? And I do what, what's called evangelistic drafting, right? So I, I pick kids not based on how good they are, but, but how many times I've had an opportunity to, like, build a relationship with their parents. So our teams aren't very good sometimes, but... Right? I see that as an opportunity in the, the rhythm of, of our family's life. I'm already doing this with my kids, and now here's an opportunity to be engaged in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. So think about the rhythms of your life, where there are opportunities that you already have where you could be sharing the gospel. I think that's what we want to encourage uh, in our midst as congregations. So the gospel spreads organically. That's the first thing I wanted us to see. The second way that we see it spreading is through suffering. So the gospel spreads when God's people suffer. That's a theological reality, and it's a historical fact. Here, the Jewish persecution spreads the disciples around the world, and they take the gospel with them. A few decades later, the Romans unleashed a brutal persecution, and Christians were imprisoned and tortured and killed for sport, and the gospel spread like wildfire. All through church history, this has been the case. When Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were being burned in Oxford for their faith in Jesus, Latimer turned to his friend and steeled his courage. He said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. When the Communist Party kicked missionaries out of China in the 1940s, the Chinese church exploded and the gospel spread all over Southeast Asia as hundreds of missionaries were reassigned. You see this historical pattern over and over and over again. When Christians suffer, the gospel spreads. And there's a theological explanation for this. After all, God's plan for our salvation involves life coming out of death. Right? Jesus suffered and died for our sins. And God raised him up, bringing life from death. In the death of Christ, we receive spiritual life. And so that's a pattern for our lives. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So John Calvin commented, The Church of Christ has, from the beginning, been so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death the passage to life. The Apostle Paul applies this idea specifically to the spread of the gospel. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now listen. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So what does Paul mean that something's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Surely he's not saying that Jesus didn't do enough on the cross to save us. 
It's not like our suffering adds to the redemptive work of Christ. No, Paul's saying that just as the death of Christ was necessary for our salvation, in the same way, in God's providence, the suffering and even the martyrdom of his people will be required to see the gospel message spread to all nations. So one author puts it this way, without suffering and martyrdom, the great effects of Christ's great success will never be fully realized. We are graced with the ministry of a necessary, bloody witness to the nations, so that all of God's children from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation might be gathered together to God. So friends, when we pray for the gospel to spread, we need to be sober-minded. Right? Someone once said, never pray for patience or humility because you don't like the way God works those things out. Maybe it's the same thing with the spread of the gospel. When we pray for the gospel to spread in Alexandria or Sterling, perhaps we are opening a door to suffering. Prosperity normally brings inertia and suffering brings mission. And so we need to be honest. We need to ask ourselves if we're ready, if we're willing to suffer so that people can hear about the gospel. Are we willing to sacrifice our time and our comfort and our money to see the gospel spread in your neighborhood or in your workplace? Are you willing to lose your reputation as as Christian beliefs become more and more repulsive to our wider culture? Are you willing to be the weird person in your office who leads the Bible study? Are you willing to open your home and give up some of your evenings to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus? It may be that God will do more to spread the gospel through you losing your job because you're a Christian. As people see the the reality and the depth of your faith as you suffer, it may be that God's pleased to do more through that than he will through your prosperity and success. And so let's pray together that God would allow us and our congregations to joyfully suffer for the gospel in any way which he calls us to do. The gospel spreads organically and it spreads through suffering. Uh, The third thing I want to point out here is the gospel spreads across barriers. That's going to be the theme of much of the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see Uh, If you read on in the book of Acts that the church goes from Jews in Jerusalem to all of the Gentile world. And so this passage here marks something of a transition as the gospel goes out now into Samaria. Now, I won't go into all the history, but take it from me and from the, the, the witness of Scripture that Jews did not like Samaritans, right? They flat out had no dealings, the Gospel of John says. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so here we read in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, if you're paying attention, you expect that the next sentence is going to say, and Philip was martyred, and they buried him, right? Because Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. But that's not what happened. In verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention. In verse 8, there was much joy in that city. The gospel has gone across an extraordinary cultural boundary. So I wonder if there's anyone that you wouldn't think to share the gospel with. 
Alexandria, maybe even more so than, than Sterling, is a, a place with so many uh, ethnic groups living together in one location, white, African-American, Hispanics, Asian Indians, Arab speakers, Africans, on and on and on. But what would it look like for you to pray earnestly to, for opportunities to share the gospel with someone that you might not naturally think of building a relationship with? Or maybe a little more pointedly, is there anyone in your life, anyone in your neighborhood, anyone in your office, even anyone in your family, that, that you naturally can't stand? Someone sort of weird and angular and, and annoying. What would it look like to cultivate a relationship with them so that you might be able to share the gospel with them? In my experience, the gospel spreads rapidly across cultural boundaries. I think in my 12 years in Sterling, I've probably led more people to Christ who don't speak English than who have. And I don't speak Spanish. But in God's providence, something about the witness across a cultural boundary shows Jesus' love in a way that's even more clear than, than when my sort of white North American neighbor who looks like me, right, hears me share the gospel. That To them, it's not interesting at all that I'm interested in them. And so who could you reach out to across a cultural boundary? Who could you reach out to across your own personal prejudices? The gospel spreads organically. It spreads through suffering and sacrifice, and it spreads across boundaries. So what I'd like to do with the rest of the time that I have is just give you a few thoughts about personal evangelism that that arise, I think, from these principles in Scripture. And I want to think particularly about why it is that you might not evangelize quite as much as you feel like you should. So if you have some sort of low, lingering sense that, that you're not as faithful in this task as you ought to be, let me, let me lead us in thinking through why that is. And then I want to finish off with a, kind of a, some rapid-fire uh, thoughts about what you can do. So why don't we share the gospel as much as we should? First reason, I think, is that we're not all that excited about Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you came up to me after the service and you asked me about Game 6 of the 1996 World Series, or you asked me about the time my son was playing catcher in an important tournament and in uh, extra innings with two outs, he, he caught a ball and tagged out the runner and he got blown up and he held onto the ball. If you, if you ask me about those things, you, I'm not going to shut up about it for about 20 minutes, right? Because I'm excited about those things. I, I love music. And so I wasn't in Garrett's office 10 minutes this morning before last night my wife and I were out seeing some bands play and I had my phone out and I was showing Garrett video of somebody he doesn't even care about, right? Why? Because I love it. I'm passionate about it. I'm interested in it, right? And so it could be that that maybe part of the reason that evangelism doesn't seem natural to us is because our hearts aren't all that captivated by the good news, We naturally talk about the things that captivate our heart. We talk about the things we're excited. Even, and this is key, even if the person we're talking to isn't interested, right? I mean, I cornered Garrett to tell him about the the bands we listened to last night. If If you stop, I will tell you about my daughter's travel softball team, right? I know you're not interested. I am, though, right? If our hearts were captivated by the good news of Jesus... I think we'd be, we'd be quicker to speak about them and less concerned about how other people might respond. And that's why I think evangelism actually starts here on Sunday mornings. 
as you all gather together to worship Jesus, the eternal Son of God, crucified for your sins, raised from the dead in victory and glory, ascended into heaven? See, Delray Baptist needs to be a congregation of people whose hearts are, are captivated and compelled by the gospel message. Because your, your mouth speaks about what your heart loves. And friend, if you're here this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, then I realize that everything I've said so far might seem fishy to you. Right? We're, we're naturally suspicious of people trying to sell us something. And so the idea that Christians are trying to convert you, the idea of proselytizing people, it, it makes us uncomfortable. It feels sort of culturally hegemonic. It feels intolerant. It feels proud. Right, the idea that I have something that you should have yourself. But just to be clear, we're not out to win you over to our team. Del Rey's not interested in adding you to their numbers or getting anything out of you. The reason why we want you to come to know Jesus is because we are amazed by how good the news really is. That the Son of God took on human flesh. That he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. That he died willingly, giving up his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt for your sins. And that he rose from the dead and offers forgiveness and eternal life, not based on anything we do, not anything we have to earn, but simply as a gift of love to everyone who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Friend, that is amazing news. That's the news that, as I mentioned earlier, transformed my life and my family. All you have to do is turn from your rebellion against God and put your trust in Jesus. So we want you to have that gift. We want you to have the same joy. There was much joy in that city, verse 8 tells us, because we think Jesus is that great and because we care about you. So friends, if, if you're hesitant to share the gospel, if you don't share the gospel, perhaps cultivating greater love and appreciation for the gospel is a good place to start. The second reason that we may not share the gospel very much is that we don't know any unbelievers. I realize that might seem like a strange thing to say in a place like this where there are unbelievers all over, but there's a difference between being around people and knowing them, right? In my experience as a pastor, many Christians go through their lives surrounded by people who need the good news about Jesus but never intentionally build a bridge of relationship with them. J.I. Packer has written, Personal evangelism needs normally to be founded on friendship. You're not usually justified in choosing the subject of conversation with another until you've already begun to give yourself to him in friendship and established a relationship with him in which he feels that you respect him and are interested in him and are treating him as a human being and not as some kind of case. So you, you can, and, and sometimes you even should, share the gospel with a perfect stranger if the Lord provides an opportunity. But you should also be cultivating friendships with people who don't know Jesus. As, as Packer says, the best way to share the gospel is when people feel, feel that you respect them and are interested in them and are treating them as a human being. And you want them to feel that way, not because you're trying to fake it, but because you actually do. And so you'll have chances to share the gospel with people who've seen your life because your life will be a powerful witness. 
<clears throat> you want to make an effort to bring unbelievers into contact with your life, with your family, with your church friendships, so they can see the gospel being played out. So that when you speak the gospel message, they already have some confirming evidence. Oh, that's why he's like that. That's why she is this way. When people see your life and they know that you love them, you'll have the right to choose the topic of conversation. So just think about it. Who could, who could you invite over to your home for a meal? How could your small group plan a time where people who don't know Jesus can spend time with you as a fellowship? Again, what are the rhythms in your life where you're spending time with the same group of people? Build relationships with unbelievers. Okay, a third reason. third reason why we may not share the gospel, and that is simply an inability to articulate the gospel. So in our church's membership interviews, maybe like you all here at Del Rey, we ask uh, potential new members to explain the gospel briefly, 60 seconds or so. And it's amazing how people who have grown up in the church or have been in the church for a long time, who love the Lord Jesus, can't explain the gospel message. And so I think it would serve you well to prepare yourself to share the gospel. That's why your pastors are, are preparing you for this work. And so you know, are you paying attention? Are you availing yourself of these resources? So this Friday, Max Stiles is coming to speak to you all about evangelism highly recommend you make time in your schedule for that. I'm sure that's going to be hugely beneficial. Uh, I learned so much from Mac about evangelism back even when I was a college student. Um, he will certainly be a helpful resource to you. But are you prepared? First uh, Peter 3.15 says to always be prepared to explain and make a defense of your hope and faith. And so I think that presumes some forethought, some advanced preparation, some understanding of the gospel and thoughts about how to share it. And then finally, a fourth reason I think that we don't share the gospel sometimes. Maybe consider this a catch-all category of, of indifference, busyness, laziness, lack of love, wrong priorities, sin. Or I think sometimes we don't share the gospel because we really just don't care that much. Or because we care about other things more. So I, I remember a time I was back in, in my, probably in my 20s, and uh, I was in grad school, so at this point I had two young kids, I was working full-time, I was doing 20-plus credits in seminary, and so we had just bought, foolishly bought like a 120-year-old house that we were renovating on the weekends by, you know, by ourselves, and so I, I was at a point where I was only sleeping about three hours a night, right, between studying and the babies and, and house and, and work, and so the one thing that sort of stood between me and complete insanity was this 15-minute break in my schedule where I could go out into my car and take a nap, right? Everything lined up just right so that between work and school appointments, I had this 15-minute window. And I remember one day uh, being in the office, and I went into the lunchroom. I got my lunch out of the refrigerator, and I went down to take the 15-minute nap that was keeping me sane. And I remember looking over, and sitting by himself at one of the tables was a guy. I'll call him Bob. It's not his name. but Now, Bob was like the resident crazy person in our office, right? Every office has one. Like the guy who sends you long emails in Latin, right? Or sometimes he'll just like take off his headset and like slam himself into the windows, right? Bob was a, was a certifiable guy. And I, I remember as I was walking out, I felt, and I'm not sort of prone to sort of clear communication from the Holy Spirit, but, but I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to go talk to him. And I stood in the doorway and I remember fighting with the Holy Spirit. Being like, but, 
but that's my, that's my nap. Like, that's the thing that's keeping me sane. That's all I've been looking forward to for the last nine hours I've been awake, right? And, and that's Bob, right? If there's anyone here that I do not want to build a relationship with, it's him, right? And that story sticks out to me because it was such a clear example, right? And because I actually got an opportunity to share the gospel with him and to see some spiritual life uh, in him. But how many times have I not bothered to share the gospel simply because I didn't want to be bothered? Uh, simply because I was more concerned about my own comfort or, or other things that, that captivated my heart. And then one more reason, a fifth reason, uh, fear of man. The gospel sounds weird. If you share the gospel, some people are going to think less of you. Right? This isn't hard to understand. I think for most of us, if your evangelism is sporadic or non-existent, it's for this reason. You just don't want to seem weird. We're prevented by a sense of shame. Right? It's not really shame. It's really pride in, in disguise. Right? We think that our reputation, our image is too important to sacrifice for the, the eternal well-being of that person and the spread of the gospel. And I, I, listen, I have no solution to this. I have no way to fix it for you so that sharing the gospel will always make you look better to everyone else around you. Because at no point does the Bible encourage us to expect anything other than this. And I think that should be encouraging. It is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong if people reject the message and even reject you for sharing the message. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because here, starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul seems to say that God intentionally brings his salvation about in a way that seems stupid to the world. So the wise, the strong, the philosophical, they're not naturally going to hear this news and embrace it. Uh, to make matters worse, God in his plan on the whole chooses to save the weak and the foolish. It says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, God intentionally sends his salvation out in a way that that the cultural elites, the, the wise, the powerful, the philosophical, uh, will not be able to recognize as the power of God. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So he's talking about evangelism, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Look, if I understand Paul correctly, if you proclaim the gospel, you are going to be the stench of death to some people. It's actually God's plan for you to look stupid sharing the gospel. 
right? Not stupid because you're obnoxious or a buffoon, but because the message is only going to seem like the power of God to people who are being saved. To people who are perishing, it will be folly. This is to confound the greatness of the world, to humble you, and to exalt God. So the results of evangelism are always either God is glorified in someone's salvation or you look stupid. And that's okay. I mean, go through the book of Acts and just see how many times no one heeds the preaching of the gospel. There's lots of amazing success, but there's also times when very few people uh, receive the gospel message. So Acts chapter 17, verse 32, always encourages me. The Apostle Paul gives maybe one of the great apologetic defenses of the faith of all time, right? It's the classic. And Acts 17.32 says, when Paul spoke of the resurrection, some mocked him, right? Paul didn't hit a home run every time he was up at bat in terms of people thinking he was great. Most of the time, he got beaten. And then I think I told you we were on the last one, but at least one more, one more reason we don't evangelize. I think we have a lack of confidence in the gospel. Maybe you're just discouraged because you've, you've shared the gospel and it seemed like nothing happened. But friends, we shouldn't confuse the fruit of evangelism with evangelism itself. God is glorified when the message of Jesus is proclaimed, no matter what the immediate results are. We're, we're simply not in a position to judge what God is doing. It may very well be that you're supposed to be the first in a very long line of people who share the gospel message with someone before they come to Christ. I can think of plenty of examples of evangelistic conversations and efforts that seemed like a total waste of time. But only many years later did I find out that the Lord was using those conversations to bring that person to Christ. Even this Tuesday... Uh, past, I had a, a two-hour lunch with someone who's not a believer, and it was a, it was a hard, frustrating conversation. I pleaded with this person to, to trust in Christ, and, and they, they were not ready to do it. And I remember I came home, and my wife was asking me about how it went, and I was just sort of frustrated and discouraged. And she was like, she just said, you don't know what God's doing. You don't, you don't know where you are in the process. You don't know where this person is in the process. And that's, of course, that's right. We shouldn't be discouraged when we don't immediately see the fruit that we want. We need to be faithful. God will save souls. Maybe not in our timing. Maybe not even the people we would choose. But he will use us if we're faithful. Remember what Paul said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Okay, so if those are reasons that we don't share the gospel, let me give you some really quick suggestions. So as you walk out of here, I'm going to give you nine things. I promise they'll be very rapid. Maybe not all of them will hit you, but hopefully one or two of these will stick as something you can do as kind of an action item this week uh, to further your uh, evangelistic witness. So first, repent. So if you see any misunderstandings or any sinful attitudes in your heart, they're not going to go away just because you're thinking about them right now. So if, as you're being honest with yourself, you've been unfaithful in your sort of lack of willingness to share the gospel, then you need to repent. Take, take time to, take, to, to confess to God the truth, whether that's selfishness or laziness or fear. You see, the gospel gives us freedom 
to, to admit when we've sinned and to go to God with the, uh, in repentance, knowing that he forgives us. And so, repent. Second, pray. I think if you don't know where to get started with evangelism, pray. Even if you don't know any unbelievers, you can pray. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to build a relationship with someone. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to talk to an unbeliever in your office. Pray that God would bear fruit from gospel seeds that you've had a chance to plant with your friends or family. Evangelism is too much for us. We cannot make any man, woman, or child a follower of Christ. So that ought to drive us to prayer. We have to come to God and confess that we're helpless and that we need him. The world does not want to hear about Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus wants the world to hear about him. And so we should devote ourselves to prayer. Third thing, plan. So repent, pray, make a plan. I think this is simple, this is practical. Evangelism very rarely happens by accident. So make a plan. Ask a friend to help you and to hold you accountable. Buy a piece of poster board. Sit down with your spouse or sit down with your roommates and make, draw a little map of your neighborhood, right? And, and put on that map who lives where, who you know and who you don't know. Perhaps who you've had a chance to share the gospel with and who you haven't had a chance to share the gospel with. And then make a plan. Make a plan to invite one couple, one family, one person over. Make a plan to, to have a, a backyard barbecue where you can invite people over. Fourth, stop making excuses. You may be the only Christian some people have in their life. And so don't be too polite to share Jesus. Look at your life honestly. Realize that most of us are going to skew towards the cowardly end of the spectrum. Don't let yourself off the hook. The world is full of polite Christians who never want to trouble anyone with the good news. Next, take a risk. Obey even when you're not sure how it's going to be received. So find some small step of obedience, whether, again, it's inviting a friend to a meeting, giving them a book, sharing your testimony, something that might open the door to share the gospel with them. Think about one thing you can do this week that would be uncomfortable, that would be risky, where you need God's help. Next, look for opportunities. Go through your day with gospel lenses on. In my experience, when I am prayerful about evangelism, I am far more aware of opportunities that I have during my day. If I've been faithful to pray, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel today, I find that the sort of random conversation I'm having with somebody over lunch or on the, on the metro suddenly seems much more significant. It doesn't suddenly seem so random. It seems like an answered prayer. It seems like an opportunity to share Christ. So go through your day looking for where God's at work, looking for opportunities to talk to other people about the gospel. Next, resolve to love people more than your own reputation. I think this is self-explanatory. Pray that God would help you, and then resolve to love others more than you love your reputation. Until that happens, you're not going to share the gospel with people until it's 100% safe. Next, be afraid. 
You see, the problem with our evangelism is not that we're afraid, it's that we're afraid of the wrong thing. So we don't have a proper fear of the Lord, but instead we're afraid of other people. Again, friends, you're going to have to choose whose opinion matters to you most. Would you rather be respectable to your coworkers, respectable to the other moms in your playgroup, or would you rather be faithful to the Lord? Friends, God is our creator, our judge, and our redeemer, and so we owe him full allegiance and full obedience. And so no human being should be able to make us tremble as we live out our lives before a holy and loving God. And then lastly, consider. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. The author of Hebrews writes, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, when we don't consider Christ, when we don't reflect on what God has done and at what a cost, we, we lose our evangelistic edge. Our hearts get cold, our minds get distracted, our lips go silent. But evangelism is about God's glory. Right When we are silent, we fail to give God the glory that he's due. But when we consider Christ, when we consider the hostility he endured from sinners, the author of Hebrews says we won't grow weary or faint-hearted. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for Delray Baptist. That's my prayer for you as individuals, that you wouldn't grow weary or faint-hearted, that you wouldn't fear others more than you fear God, that your hearts would be so captivated by the the gospel message that it would flow naturally out of your lips and out of your lives to others and that many might come to know Christ through you all. Let's pray that that would happen in your midst. Our Heavenly Father, you are a gracious and merciful Savior. We praise you and we thank you for your great love for the world that you would send your only son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and have the sure hope of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being part of the work of spreading your gospel in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and communities. Father, forgive us for the ways that we are sometimes begrudging ways in which we sometimes think of evangelism as a chore or a burden. But we pray that you would give us great joy in Christ that would overflow naturally. We pray that you'd give us courage and a willingness to suffer. We pray that you would help us not to fear others, but to fear you only. And Lord, I pray for Delray Baptist that you would use these brothers and sisters, this congregation, to spread your gospel throughout this area that many people would find joy in Christ through them. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.